Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one this evening, to the book of Numbers, chapter 21. You might be asking yourself, well, that's an odd book to turn to on Good Friday evening, uh, but hopefully one uh, which will make sense um, within the next half hour. I hope. Numbers chapter 21, let's begin in verse 4, reading through verse 9. From Mount Hor they set out by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. The people began, uh, became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, saying, Why have you brought us out from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. And so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he might take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, he shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and he would live. This is God's word. Uh, let us go before uh, the Lord now and pray that he would bless us that we might understand it. Uh, our gracious God and Heavenly Fathers, we have gathered together this evening. We pray that you would open, uh, open the eyes of our hearts, uh, that we might see Christ as he is uh, displayed to us in the scriptures, that through this you would uh, nourish our faith and strengthen it, that we might behold Christ in all of his glory. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm not sure if I can think of any uh, greater uh, challenge in this world uh, than parenting uh, and parenting well. It's not something that I've ever had to worry about, uh, but when I see so many parents, particularly, uh, or not particularly, but even uh, parents in this congregation, I, I have to say in, in many ways, I, I don't envy you. It's a great uh, and, and difficult challenge that is set uh, before you. Consider all the trials uh, that you face along the way as you are parenting, uh, protecting your uh, beloved children from those malevolent figures, be it bullies or predators, while at the same time training your children to repudiate those malicious thoughts and feelings that arise from their own hearts, teach them how to be good and kind to one another, how to forgive, uh, to learn what it means uh, to be raised uh, within the covenant, to know the Lord Jesus Christ and to cling to Him, to learn to refuse practicing wrong and in the fear of the Lord to do what is right. It is a great and difficult task. It's hard because so often I think children make up and uh, end up making the same mistakes over and over and over again. And I think everybody, every parent knows what it means to have one's own patience tried. But what happens when the child willfully and maliciously does wrong, not just once, but over the course of an entire lifetime? You know, the first time uh, you see your kid perhaps steal from his uh, baby brother or sister, you warn them 
and then it happens again and you have to warn them more sternly and over time you might have to ground them or find other ways to punish them. But what happens when uh, they enter high school or they graduate and they get caught for uh, robbing a local grocery store and find themselves spending time in prison? What happens when that uh, pattern of behavior remains so embedded uh, over the course of their life that they continue to harden themselves over and over and over again. Well, tonight is not a lesson in parenting, but I, I do think that this presents to us an entry point for understanding what we see in the passage before us this evening. As it tells us a very bizarre incident in the, this moment in Israel's history. And by it, it provides for us a lens through which we can grasp the significance of Christ's death. I'd like us to take this rather bizarre incident in Scripture in, in two particular parts. First, we'll consider the matter of sin in verses 4 to 6, and then the matter of salvation in verses 7 to 9. So the matter of sin and salvation, and of course, finally, we'll consider the significance for today. Of course, um, I don't think many of us um, are that familiar with the book of Numbers. Perhaps you've read it when you've uh, embarked upon your uh, year-long Bible reading plan, but I think so many of us are more familiar with the Gospel of John or uh, the book of Philippians than we are the book of Numbers. Well, if you're not familiar with the book of Numbers, perhaps it would do well for me to summarize it for you. Uh, and I think uh, the Hebrew title of this particular book helps us situate what it is that's going on. Uh, the, the book in Hebrew simply means in the wilderness. And that's what the book of Numbers is. is it is Moses' book that recounts to us the life of Israel as they made their way through the wilderness for 40 years. If you recall, the Lord had delivered Israel from slavery. He had adopted them as his own children. He had uh, promised now to lead them to the land of Canaan. And in one sense, we can see and describe these 40 years as an exercise in divine parenting. That's certainly how the Lord describes these 40 years, that he continues to care for them as a nursing mother, that as a father, he hedges in and protects them. I want you to imagine what it would be like to adopt a child who came from an abusive home. It takes time not only for the son to learn the new rules of living under this new house, but perhaps it might also take time for that child to trust his new parents. Israel has spent 400 years in slavery under the thumb of an oppressive regime. In one sense, this is why the Lord decided to deliver Israel so miraculously, so spectacularly, so that they could look back and see the great depth of the Lord's love for them. That with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, He led them out from under Pharaoh's regime through the waters of the Red Sea. Ten miraculous judgments and plagues that befell the nation of Israel to, uh, to sever Pharaoh's bond, bringing them through the waters of the Red Sea that the Lord might drown Pharaoh's army so that Israel could look back on this moment and know that they are safe in the arms of the Maker of heaven and earth, this Maker who is also their Redeemer. 
who provides them with a pillar of fire by night to give them heat from the cold, who gives them a cloud by day to protect them from the desert sun and the heat that they might not suffer from heat stroke. And so the Lord begins to nurture their faith. He leads them into the wilderness for a particular reason. He provides them miraculously with food and water daily. Shade from the heat and heat from the cold every day and every night miraculously that they might know more fully the love of God for them than ever before. Not just in terms of creation, but also in terms of providence and redemption. But even from day one, Israel gripes and moans, not merely for a few days, not merely for a few weeks, but for nearly 40 years. The same complaints over and over and over again. This is not simply a a, a case of Israel not having learned their lesson. We see here in this passage, here is a nation that has in fact grown impatient with their God and Father. And in fact, over the course of time, their behavior has grown more brazen. Not simply a matter of distrust. Even after a lifetime of tender care, now they put God to the test and accuse Him of malicious activity. The people as a whole are convinced that the Lord has brought them out to the desert that He might put them to death. That He might murder them. If we could put these things in perspective for a moment, you know, I'm 40 years old. Imagine, uh, you know, uh, you know, me living with my parents my entire life, rent free. They cook my meals, they buy me clothes, they put a roof over my head, and one day I decide to spit in their face and go, "What are you doing? What are you trying to do? Are you trying to kill me with this garbage? What is this food that you've put before me?" Of course, Israel here is speaking of manna from heaven. Water that comes from a rock to show that this is a miraculous provision. This is not Israel uh, surviving on their own merits and by their own efforts. This is Israel being provided for day and night in tender love and care, and yet they look God in the face, so to speak. They look at Moses in the face and say, what are you doing to us? It reflects a malicious attitude that they hold in their own heart to the maker of heaven and earth. There's a brazenness about this misconduct. It shows that there is something uh, quite insidious lurking underneath. Such is the character of sin, isn't it? It is malicious. It is serpentine. It reflects the very character that we see in the nature of serpents day in and day out. And the, and the character of the snake ever uh, since the opening pages of Genesis chapter 3, these, these continued whispers of hints and allegations, those, those things left unsaid that the Lord does not care for His own. That is Israel. Verse 4, they've grown impatient with God's ways as He has led them into the wilderness, even though He continues to protect them from their enemies First Egypt and now the Edomites, the sons of Esau, the Lord continues to hedge them in, and yet they continue to spurn God's love. Though uh, they uh, continue to survive day in and day out, they're like a child sitting on their father's lap, slapping him in the face. Verse 5, they speak out against both God and Moses, saying, have you come here to murder us? By the way, the food you gave us is miserable. This man, it makes me want to puke. ESV translates it as worthless. 
showing great disdain for the care that the Lord gives to his people. There's a word that we do have for such behavior, such uh, shamelessness, such uh, brashness, such immodesty. We would say that their uh, behavior is brazen. And now they've accused the Lord himself of wickedness, of treachery and murder. And now the Lord finally says, enough is enough. You eat my food, you sit under my protection. I've loved you from the very first day. And now you accuse me of this. He says, as it were, you want to act like a snake? Fine, I'll send you a snake. And so he sends these fiery serpents that invades the camp of Israel. This can't just be one or two. We're talking about several million uh, inhabitants of the nation of Israel. There's got to be an awful lot of snakes uh, to, to send the camp into a panic. Not sure what kind of serpent it is. Some commentators think it was a cobra. The Hebrew word suggests that the uh, that there, uh, in fact, some of your translations, uh, if I recall the King James, if, if I remember, refers to them as winged serpents. So you think of the cobra with uh, the hood around its, its head looking like wings. Quite literally, in the Hebrew, they are the serpents, serpents of the seraphim. You think of the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6, those angelic figures with six wings that cover their eyes and their feet. They stand before the Lord day and night, worshiping the Lord, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Those angelic figures who stand in the presence of God who are themselves frightening. Here the Hebrew says it is the serpents of the seraphim. Whatever that means, whether they are fiery serpents like a, a normal serpent like cobra or some type of uh, a, a, um, a, a heavenly type creature, uncertain, but whatever these serpents are, whatever these beasts are, the message is clear. In her treachery, Israel has accused the Lord of treachery. And now the Lord gives them their just deserts. In His fury and His wrath, He sends deadly serpents as just retribution for their wickedness. The Lord should not be seen here as being a capricious deity that somehow woke up on the wrong side of the bed. His honor and His name has been called into question time and time and time again. And now the blazing wrath of God comes against the people in the wilderness. They have put the Lord to the test. And so the wrath of God begins to fall down upon them in justness and holiness and righteousness. There's a punishment that falls upon them for their sin and they begin to drop like flies. Certainly proves to be a wake-up call that they need, doesn't it? There's no guessing why the serpents have begun to strike. We don't see it recorded that as the serpents begin to invade the camp, everybody goes, well, why is this happening to me? Rather, everybody already knows why it is that this is happening. They don't need Moses to explain to them why so many people are dying. The people know. They come and they confess their sin to Moses. They say, we have acted treacherously against the Lord by accusing the Lord of wickedness. We have spoken against uh, the Lord and the Lord's mediator, Moses himself. And so they turn to Moses, the very man who just moments earlier they were complaining against. They, uh, now they turn to him and are, and are grabbing him by his feet, so to speak, saying, please save us. Turn to the Lord. Pray to the Lord. Intercede to Him on our behalf. 
This is not a generic confession of sin. Oh, yeah, I did some wrong in the past. This is not uh, the use of the passive voice. Mistakes were made. Things, unfortunate things were said. No, they say we have sinned wickedly against the Lord. For we have spoken against the Lord and we have spoken against you. Pray that the Lord might take this punishment, this punishment that we deserve from our midst. The nation has no right to petition the Lord. They have accused Him of sin. The Lord says elsewhere in Scripture that you know, if a man were to sin against his brother, there is one to intercede for him. But if a man sins, sins against the Lord, who is there to mediate on his behalf? Well, here Israel does have a mediator. They have Moses. He is their appointed arbitrator. You can imagine being in Moses' feet, Moses' feet, Moses' shoes. How would you respond? Of a nation that continues to grumble against you day in, day out, and yet finally you wake up one day and you see the serpents come, and your enemies, so to speak, begin to drop like flies. How many of us would go, oh, finally, justice, vindication? But here we find the meekest man on the face of the earth, and that is not his response. Moses immediately begins to pray on behalf of those who have insulted him and reviled him and accused him of all sorts of nasty things. Even as they only moments earlier were speaking wickedly against him. Moses pleads their case before the Lord. The Lord hears Moses' prayer. And in the Lord's mercy, the Lord Himself makes provision to deliver Israel from what she rightly deserves. But it's certainly an odd antidote, isn't it? What does the Lord tell Moses to do? Go down to the local Rite Aid? Pick up a snake repellent kit? Right, he tells Moses this, is make, a, make a bronze serpent. Put it on a pole. Anyone who looks to the bronze serpent will live. Can you imagine the response? Excuse me now? What, what am I supposed to do? A couple oddities here. The Lord just commanded Moses to make a graven image. Doesn't that seem to violate the Ten Commandments that the Lord had given at the heights of Sinai? I think here's a helpful tidbit when we read Israel's history. Anytime that God commands somebody in Scripture to do something that seems to violate His moral law, we're about to witness something that points us to Jesus. Think of Abraham. The Lord appears to Abraham one day and says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, as if the Lord could not get any clearer. I'm going to put him to death. This is not an ordinary thing. And so when the Lord commands the people in Scripture to do something that seems to run contrary to His will, what we should expect is something that is setting the stage, is presenting to us a prophetic picture of the salvation that is to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
There's another oddity to this that we see here. When Israel looks at the bronze serpent hanging on the pole, what would they see? Of course, we would say you would see the brazen serpent. But what would that serpent remind them of? They would see the very thing that they deserved. They say that is what my sin deserves. They're hanging on the pole. The fiery serpent. The judgment of God. That is what I see. And there is something that I now look at made in its likeness. That when I look to it, I will be delivered. Here they see the wrath of God put on full display before their very eyes. It is as if the Lord says, this is what you deserve, but now I will give you something that you don't deserve. Rather than the fury of my wrath, I will pour out life and give you mercy and grace. Certainly, this is an odd moment in Israel's history. That is for sure. Yet, this historical moment vividly portrays for us the very nature of salvation and the reason that we have gathered together this evening. When Paul writes to the church of Corinth in his first letter, uh, 1 Corinthians, he actually makes reference to this moment in Israel's history. It's five little verses in a book so many of us aren't familiar with. And yet Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians 10, tells the church of Corinth this. He says, now these things took place as examples for us today. That we might not desire evil as they did. As Paul goes on to list several other moments in the life of Israel, such as the golden calf incident and this one alike, he also includes, uh, like I said, this moment to describe Uh, what it is that is transpiring. This is 1 Corinthians 10.9. He says, we must not put Christ to the test. Some of them did, and they were destroyed by serpents. This moment in Israel's history has a lesson for us here in Corvallis in April 15th, 2022. Moses recorded this moment in Israel's life to warn us of the seriousness of sin, particularly what happens when we put the Lord to the test and accuse Him of being a malicious father. How striking it is that here Israel would accuse God of great wickedness, and even in the midst of such treachery, the Lord would show His people undeserved mercy. So great is God's love for sinners. But Paul is not the only one who references this moment in Israel's history from the New Testament. One night, a Pharisee comes to Jesus under cover of night. This Pharisee's name is Nicodemus. By this point in time in Jesus' ministry, he has begun to perform some mighty works in the midst of a treacherous people. People who look at the mighty works of God and they just kind of shrug their shoulders and yawn. As Pharisee says to Jesus in the middle of the night, he says, Teacher, he says, we know that you've come from God because no ordinary man can do these things. And then Jesus begins to tell Nicodemus why it is that he has come. First, by telling Nicodemus, truly, truly, I tell you, you, uh, you must be born again or else you will not be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
You read about this moment in John chapter 3, and it culminates in one of the most beautiful summaries of the good news that Christians have been given in John 3.16, that God loved the world in this way, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, that the world might through Him be saved. We're all familiar with uh, that verse. We sang it moments ago. You probably see it uh, strung up on a banner whenever you watch a football game on the TV on Saturday. At least if you're watching an SEC football game. But that's not where Jesus begins here, is it? Jesus doesn't begin by talking about the free gift of salvation in John 3.16. He begins by speaking about this in particular in John 3.14. To help us properly understand the context of the manner of God's love. And this is what Jesus says. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. This provides, this moment in Numbers 21 provides the context for understanding what is quite possibly the greatest verse in the New Testament, John 3.16. And this is where the lens comes into view. This bizarre moment in Numbers 21, as odd as it might be, is a prophetic moment that serves as a pair of prescription glasses that helps us, as it were, see the death of Christ with greater clarity. It tells us that our sin is treacherous and it merits a fiery death. But that God and His love has made full provision for sin in the most extraordinary way. We might even perhaps call it odd. That He would send His Son who knew no sin to be made in the likeness of sinful flesh for us. That when we look at the cross, we must say that this is, in fact, what my sin deserved. It is brutal, it is ghoulish, and it is perfectly just. And yet, I'm not the one hanging there on the pole. For God so loved the world in this manner that He sent His Son to die in my place. That I, by simply looking to Him, will be saved from the curse of sin. See, this is why the death of Christ is so necessary. This is why we gather together to commemorate the death of Christ, not just one Friday a year, but every Sunday week in and week out, commemorating the death and the resurrection of our Savior who came to bear our sins for the very things that they are. Not by washing over them and pretending that they are no big deal, but recognizing them for what they are. They are an act of treachery. And the Lord, though He would have been fully just in condemning us in our sin, sent His Son not to condemn the world, but to save the world through faith in Him. The death of Christ is not an accident of history. The Lord gives us these, kind of, uh, uh, these moments of, kind of prophetic snapshots that present to us pictures, what we call types, of the Messiah who would come. They were premeditated, predetermined, and predestined according to the plan of God before the foundations of the very earth so that God might make the great mystery of His love known to us, that we might comprehend the significance of Christ's death for us. That Christ died to bear my sin 
that I might look to Him and live. But what does it mean to look to Jesus? Does that mean that I should you know, kind of go down to the local Christian bookstore, where I guess the closest one is in Albany, purchase a picture of Jesus hanging on a cross, hang it up in my room and just stare at it day in and day out? I don't think so. If you go on to read Israel's history in 2 Kings chapter 18, we were told that in King Hezekiah's day, the, the brazen serpent was still around, and a cult following had developed around this bronze serpent that many within the nation of Israel would gather and, and kind of genuflect, bow down, and, and, and pay homage to this brazen picture of salvation from a historical moment in time. And Hezekiah, seeing it, shatters the pole, declares it to be idolatry, and tells them that they need to return to the true worship of the living God. See, what had happened is Israel had misunderstood the nature of what it was that was saving them. They were setting their salvation on something that is seen. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we walk not by sight, but by faith. That when we are called to behold Christ, it does not mean that we are to get a wooden or metallic image of Jesus and stare at just a picture of somebody hanging on a tree. Rather, we are to consider Christ with the eyes of faith, who it is that Christ is in His person and His office as our Redeemer, our prophet, priest, and king, in His estate of humiliation and exaltation, in the work that He accomplishes as He bears our sins at the cross and dies in our place and is raised from the dead for our justification. That is what we are called to behold. That is what we are called to consider. To behold Christ as He is seated now in heaven by faith. You know, as we gather together tonight, it's so easy to get religious, to sing the various hymns or carols that we're used to singing this time of year, and, and to treat the service like a lucky rabbit's foot, where we come and say, all right, I've done my religious duty for, uh, for the year or for the week. Now I can go and continue to do whatever it is I want, treating this wonderful moment as some type of fire insurance. But to do so would miss the whole point of the cross. Our sin is serious. I would venture to say that not a single person in this room, myself included, recognizes how serious our own sin is. It's more serious than we could ever imagine. We should not treat our sin flippantly or accuse God recklessly and think that it will not hurt us. And that is what the cross teaches us. The cross reminds us of the heinousness of sin, that Christ Himself died on the cross God made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. But the cross not only teaches us about the justice of God, it teaches us of the great love of God. That though we fully deserve God's wrath, God sent His Son to die in our place that we might live if we would but look to Him and behold Him with the eyes of faith. 
That is our task this evening. This is what we do week in and week out in the preaching of the Word to consider what it means to behold Christ by faith as He comes to us in each portion of Scripture as we meditate on it daily as there is so much uh, a treasure trove and a rich depository that, that is found in uh, the Bible concerning Christ and who He is for us. We are called to live in it and abide in it day in and day out. So let this be an encouragement and exhortation to you that our salvation is not found in our own good works. It is found by looking to Christ and Christ calls us to look to Him and to know that if we but turn to Him, He will deliver us from all of our sin and one day from all of our sorrow. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word and Your Gospel and pray that You would uh, convict our hearts of sin where we need to confess our sins to You. Uh, that we might know the forgiveness of sin that is found in Christ and Christ alone. We ask these things in Christ's name.